You know, I used to hate to go to my own senior staff meetings because I knew the guys were going to fight among themselves. They were going to fight with me. They weren't going to do what I asked them to do. And I just had to learn, okay, this is my decision. I got to tell them what to do. And that took a while. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Deborah Lee. Debbie is the former chairman and CEO of Black Entertainment Television, or BET. She was CEO for 13 years and was at the media and entertainment giant for over 30 years. Debbie is also the founder of Leading Women Defined and the co-founder of the Monarchs Collective. Both are organizations dedicated to mentoring, supporting, and empowering women and people of color. And now Debbie is sharing how she climbed to the top of the entertainment industry in her new memoir, I Am Deborah Lee. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Great. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you. Before we get into the conversation, we'd like to warm up with a little lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. (laughs) Great. Okay, Debbie, what was the first job that you ever got paid for? I was a sales associate in the jewelry department at Belk's Department Store in Greensboro, North Carolina. Were you good? Did you have a lot of sales? I I was good. And I love jewelry. And I still love jewelry. Uh, So it was a great place for me to start a career. Well, to be honest, they started me at Christmas time. I did gift wrap first. (laughs) I didn't love that I would be very bad at that. Yeah. Yeah. But when I settled down in the jewelry department, I did much better. But let me tell you the story. When I went to interview, I went to all black school in Greensboro, North Carolina. Oh, this is the lightning round. I'm sorry. I'm giving no, you too no, much no, information. Okay. But I had a big Afro out to here. It was 1971. And the head of HR, who was a white woman, looked at me and she said, can you wear your hair another way? Oh, my gosh. And I knew exactly what she meant. And I said, yes, I can. And so when I showed up my first day of work, I had straightened my hair. Oh, I hate that so much. Yeah. It's, you know, I didn't take offense to it at the time. Looking back on it, it was a little offensive. But, you know, I knew exactly what she meant. (laughs) So, and I think because of my skin tone, she thought if I had straighter hair, people might not realize I was black. Anyway, more lightning rounds. (laughs) Yes. Uh, What's something we can't Google about you? Aside from that story, I majored in Chinese communist ideology at Brown University. You know, I read that in in our prep for this. So we did know that. But I actually want to pause on that. There's a lot of majors you could have had. Talk to us. How did that become your major? Well, I grew up in a segregated town and I always my parents raised me to to want to give back. So I always wanted to give back and help my community. I didn't know exactly how I was going to do that. I was kind of interested in politics at the same time. And it was the the end of the 70s, very militant time in America. And we were all searching for the right way. And I wasn't sure that capitalism 
was the right way. And so for some reason, I was attracted to communes and other kind of political systems. So I decided to study what they were doing in China. And I just wanted to learn more about other political systems. So Debbie, you met a lot of people that are very famous in in your storied career at BET. Yeah. Who did you meet that left you the most starstruck? Denzel Washington. Ooh, that's a good one. I would have been starstruck too. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. What was your favorite show that went on BET? My favorite show was Being Mary Jane. I love that show. (laughs) Oh, good. Yay. That's the only show I greenlit on the spot. What is your go-to karaoke song? Wow. I think it would be My Girl by The Temptations. That's a good one. Or My Guy by Mary Wells. I was a Motown (laughs) fanatic. And both of those songs, I think, are two of the best songs that came out of Motown. What is the last book that you read? I read Virgil Abdul's book over holiday break. Someone gave it to me and and I really enjoyed it. That's a good recommendation. And funny you should ask the day after Pharrell is named to replace him. Yes. I know. Pharrell Williams. Yeah, that was big news yesterday. But I, I didn't know Virgil, but I knew people who knew him and we lost him much too soon. My son, who passed away in 2020, which was very difficult, was such a a style fanatic, and he had a lot of off-white shoes and clothes that warmed my heart. We asked you about your first paying job, but I want to know, how did you find your first full-time job? My first full-time job was at a law firm in Greensboro. I was three Black male lawyers. And I was their receptionist for the summer. And I don't remember how I got it. Uh, I knew all three of the lawyers personally, but I must have called one of them and asked for a job. And they hired me for the summer. And that was kind of my introduction to law. And I also saw how powerful these three Black lawyers were in town. If you wanted to do a new business, you had to come to them. One of them became a judge. One of them went on city council. And it's, it indicated to me that you could do a lot of different things with a law degree. So it was a great first job. We're going to jump into kind of the meat of our, our interview with you. When reading about you and your book, which we, we loved, and congratulations. Mm. Thank you. It seems like you had a desire to be a leader and make change from a young age. You organized protests to going to law school. Give us a picture. What was young child Debbie Lee like? What were you like? Wow, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I was very shy. My dad was in the army. And in my early years, we moved maybe every two to three years. I was born in Columbia, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. When I was six months old, we moved to Germany, lived there for three or four years. Then we moved to D.C., where my dad taught ROTC at Howard. Then we moved to Compton, California, while my dad went to Korea. And then we finally moved to Greensboro, North Carolina, when my dad retired. So I think Greensboro is where I really found my identity and my true friends and um, you know, it, it really molded me. We moved there when I was in the sixth grade. And I think I talk about this in the book. 
they elected me president of the class the first day. <laughs> so somebody who once ran for school president and, and didn't get it, yeah. please tell me, and I had gone to the school for a long time. So your first day, mm. what did you do that made people gravitate towards you? <laughs> Not that I'm having just, any, you know, lingering right. feelings about it. <laughs> well, to make you feel better, when please. I got to high school, I didn't win anything. I, okay, I thank mailed. you. I feel better. But that first day of school, I think they just said this young girl is odd. She just moved here from Los Angeles. No one moves to Greensboro, North Carolina from Los Angeles. So I think they just thought I was so weird and different. They didn't see my leadership capability because I didn't have any at the time. But it pushed me forward and was my first real step in terms of leadership. And I had to learn to get over my shyness. And it wasn't until I became an adult that I read the book Quiet and realize, oh, I'm an introvert. I'm not just shy, I'm an introvert, and really understood what goes into that. I want to actually, I'm going a little off script or out of order here, but we're going to dig into your rise to the executive level, but you talk about being shy, being quieter, and we spent a lot of time on this show talking to those who identify as, you know, introverted extroverts or extroverted mm-hmm. introverts. Danielle and I both identify that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having to channel sort of energy within yourself to become a leader. And so I'm curious, mm-hmm. how did your shyness end up showing up for you as you became a leader? Well, the first thing it did, I was terrified of public speaking. And when I, I guess the first time I noticed it, or maybe I always knew it, but the first time it really affected me is when I had to do moot court in law school. And that's when they give you a case and two teams have to argue against each other. You're in front of a judge. And I never liked that part of the law. I never wanted to be a litigator. I never wanted to be in court. So that was terrible. And I remember I had just come back on a plane and I had a little thing of liquor, those little bottles they used to give you on the plane. And before my moot court, I went in the bathroom and drank it like that that was going (laughs) to do something. I mean, I just needed something to calm my nerves. I just went like this. I know. I don't know why I thought that was going to help. But anyway, I was scared to death. So It became even more clear as I was called on, and maybe this was first when I was called on in law school classes, because, you know, in college, you just sit there and take notes. You don't have to get up and speak in front of 150 people. And that's what I had to do in law school. So that was all terrifying for me. And when I went to court, I was terrified. I mean, court is something you can't study for. And I had no idea. I didn't know what side of the room to sit on. And I remember being terrified. And I got a mistrial the first time I went to court because one of my witnesses talked to some of the other witnesses on their way out. I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that. And the attorney on the other side, he saw my witnesses speaking to each other and he went in and asked for a mistrial. So embarrassing. I had to go back and tell the partner I was working with. So we eventually settled the case and I never tried litigation again. And then when I went to BET, The first thing that terrified me was when I became COO and I had to do town hall meetings and present to analysts when we became a public company. And the way it it manifested, my voice would literally quiver. And it's hard to be a COO and you're terrified speaking to the people in the room. And it 
just took me a lot of practice to get over that. You know, it's not the kind of thing you can stop. And I tried, you know, doing training with public speaking type people, but what really helped was doing it over and over. I want to talk about something that you you skipped over, but is a huge part of your story, where when I think about people that become lawyers, there is such a track and a commitment. And then you, at some point, decide that that is not what you necessarily want to have as your day job anymore, like the bulk of your time. Can you talk through that transition? And what made you do it? Was it a lack of fulfillment? Or was it that you saw a different challenge? Well, that's a very good question. In the first place, I never really wanted to be a lawyer. My dad wanted me to be a lawyer. And if I was brave enough and could stand up to my dad, I probably wouldn't have ever gone to law school. While I was applying to law school, I also applied to design schools because I wanted to be a fashion designer. And I told my dad, I was thinking about not going to law school right away. And he said, well, if you don't go immediately, I won't pay for it. Well, that was, that was pretty clear. Then I got into Harvard Law School. So, and I didn't want to apply there. My dean made me apply. I didn't even tell my father I had applied. And so when I told my father, I said, you know, I'm going to go to Harvard after I made my own decision. He said, well, you didn't even apply. I was like, yeah, well, I did, (laughs) but I didn't tell you (laughs) because I wanted to make my own decision. And I had a boyfriend in California and I really wanted to go to Stanford. But anyway, so then I ended up at Harvard Law School. And what do they teach you? Nothing but law and what they call black letter law, not even public policy law. And so I got through law school and my feeling was I was on this roller coaster or a Ferris wheel of doing all the right things, going to Harvard, getting a clerkship, which I didn't want. It just fell in my lap, going to a big law firm. I stayed at the law firm, check another box, you know, but I didn't like it too much. And I never really fit in. You know, I was the the associate who wore the orange sport jackets. I didn't do the blue, black and gray thing. And people got a kick out of it, but it was clear I didn't fit in. And so when BET came along, I was ready to leave the law firm. I knew I loved communications and media, and I had started interviewing, but I was interviewing mostly in New York with HBO and CBS Records and blah, blah, blah. And I really didn't want to move to New York. And then BET was a client and Bob Johnson asked me to come start the legal department. And I was like, this is perfect. (laughs) You know, I can go do something close to what I want and I can get off of this merry-go-round of just getting qualifications. And so it was a big leap and none of the partners understood it. And it was the first time I'd done something in my life that was risky, but it was the best thing I could have done. I loved it from the start. And even though I stayed as general counsel for maybe 11, 10 years. You know, I was trying to get out of that position the whole time and taking on more business things. You did end up wearing a lot of different hats at BET. Um, And in the book, you write about a very pivotal moment that many people can relate to when you asked for a raise because you had taken on so Mm -hmm. many responsibilities and you got denied. Take us back in time. What went through your head? What happened? Well, BET had just gone public. 
So we were doing all the right things for the SEC. We had a compensation committee made up of three guys, Bob Johnson, Ty Brown, who was a partner at the law firm where I worked, and I had worked for him before I went to BET, and a businessman who did a lot of media deals named Herb Wilkins. So we were at a cable convention in Dallas, I'll never forget. And they said, okay, we're going to go to this restaurant. We're going to do your compensation review. And I was the first one and the last one they ever did. (laughs) So I go to this meeting. And by this time, I was a publisher of, you know, two magazines. I was running business development. I was running business strategy. I was still general counsel. And all I was asking for was a five to $10,000 increase over what the other executives were making. Because my argument was, I'm doing three or four jobs. At least you could recognize that. And so I made my plea and they all sat there and said no. And Herb Wilkins in particular said, if you don't like what Bob Johnson pays you, you should leave. There are plenty of other people who would like your job. And I just, that was so hurtful because I love my job. I didn't want to leave. But at that point, it just felt like such a personal insult. I got up from the table. I went to the bathroom. I cried. You know, never want to let them see a woman cry. I dried my tears and went back and finished the conversation. And the next day I started planning my exit. And I, like I said, I wasn't what I wanted to do. But I, you know, sometimes you just know it's your time to leave. And you don't want to be insulted or taken advantage of. And I, I felt like, you know, I was doing really good work and they were not willing to, to pay me for that. There's a quote that really resonated, which is that, you know, you spoke about the idea that men are promoted based on potential and women are promoted based on experience. Well, I think men in general, and this is changing, but men in general are better self-promoters. They walk in with the I can do anything approach. Women walk in more so with the I'm here to learn. I'm here to do a good job. I'm not worrying about my next step. (laughs) I'm just happy to be here. And that was um, the way women were entering corporate America at that time. They weren't starting out saying, oh, I want to be CEO in 10 years or I want to be COO in three years. When I was offered the job of COO, I didn't even know the job existed because it didn't. But I found out that three of my male counterparts had already asked for the job. It's like, how did they ask for the job? There is no job. How did they know there was a job? And I guess they just thought, you know, they were doing such a good job. They deserved it. And and maybe they did. But I think it's really about self-promotion and confidence and showing that. And sometimes when women show that, men get intimidated. And that was really never my way, you know, being an attorney and used to, you know, being quiet. I mean, I spoke up when I felt strongly about something, but I didn't speak up just to hear myself talk. And I saw a lot of men in the company and even when we were acquired by Viacom that talked just to hear themselves talk. And, you know, sometimes we're saying the same thing women were saying, and the women were really ignored. And so it took me a while to start pointing those things out. Even when I became COO, it took me a while to use that power 
You know, I used to hate to go to my own senior staff meetings because I knew the guys were going to fight among themselves. They were going to fight with me. They weren't going to do what I asked them to do. And I was more of a consensus builder and there was never consensus. And I just had to learn, okay, this is my decision. I got to tell them what to do. And that took a while. And it took me a while. I write about this in the book. Took me a while to get my own team because at first Bob Johnson told him I, I couldn't fire them. I mean, what kind of thing is that? Now they're boss, but I can't fire them. You're talking about so many things that we could literally do an hour on each topic. So right. I'm trying to trying to skim it. But <laughs> it's an interesting thing that you just talked about with Bob, which is here's somebody who didn't give you some great advice about a really key thing. And I think many of us have to, right. you know, at times learn a lesson of like how to weed out advice from mentors that is helpful and right. how to recognize when this isn't serving you. Yes. And so I'm curious how you reflect on that. And, you know, for those that are listening, how would you advise them? Right. Well, I would advise them to speak up quickly if they feel something is wrong. And I didn't feel like I had a choice. I had been given this big promotion. Bob told everyone they now reported to me. You know, I kind of felt, okay, that's all I'm going to get right now. But I should have told him then or and stood my ground that I can't do this job if you tell them I can't discipline or fire them. So it took me about six months to come back and say, Bob, this is not working. And maybe if I had said that earlier, he would have done it. But I think he felt so bad about taking people who had come to the company to work with him and giving them another boss that he tried. He did this. I know he did it at a last minute thing to make them feel better. And it didn't serve the company well at all. One thing that you talk about as something that was a hurdle to get over is the idea that you were too nice. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And how'd you get over it? Well, when I was appointed as COO, that's when I first heard that word applied to me so often. I got flowers galore from people all over. And people immediately thought, because I was COO, that I was heir apparent. That was something else I hadn't expected. I didn't think people would take that leap. But as soon as Bob appointed me, people were like, oh, my God, you're going to be next CEO. Isn't that great? But I got so many notes that said, this doesn't usually happen to nice people or you never see nice people win. And, you know, I thought about that a lot. And I think, you know, some of the people that reported to me thought that too. Oh, well, she's too nice. You know, I can get away with a lot with her. And I just had to figure out how to be more direct, how to discipline people, how to terminate people, which is something I never enjoyed. But you can't be a CEO or a COO and be nice. You know, you can be nice a lot of the time, but when it comes to making decisions and making changes when needed, you can't be nice. You can be fair. I think you can be fair and you can give people acceptable going away packages. But, you know, terminating people is the hardest thing you have to do as an executive. And some of them are going to hate you. So if you're a nice person and worry about being nice, you can't get your job done. You can't worry about that. And it's interesting in my career, I've restructured a million times and terminated people for cause and terminated people when the company just didn't do as well as we wanted. 
And a lot of those people are still my friends, which is a sign to me that I did it in a fair way. I'm sure some of them don't like me to this day, but, you know, again, you just have to learn to deal with that. There was a, a point where, where people definitely were disagreeing with a, a decision you made so much so that they were protesting outside of your house. <laughs> what was that like emotionally? And, you know, as a CEO, the buck stops with you. You're making the decision. Right. How did you stick to it? Yeah, I think that was my first real test as CEO when I became CEO is when this minister came to me from the D.C. area. He's from only Maryland. And said, first he called and said he wanted to meet with me. And then I said, sure, I'll meet with you. And then he said, I want you to take these three videos off the air. And you can't be nice in that situation. I said, well, I can't do that. And he said, well, you know, if you don't take them off, you're going to regret it or something like that. And I said, I don't think I said this immediately, but after I thought about it, I was like, look, I run this company. The buck does stop with me. I'm going to get the criticism or the praise whether something goes right or wrong. And I can't let this outsider come in here and tell me what to take off the air. And we had committees set up to review videos. We would go back and forth with the um, labels. We'd listen to our community if they didn't like a video. And so we were already making decisions. And when you make a decision, not everybody in the world is going to agree with you. But I said to the minister that day, I said, if I take off three videos today, you'll be back in a couple of months with three more videos. And you're not running this network. And so he brought protesters to my house on Saturday for seven months. It's one thing for us, you know, and I remember when this happened, reading about it and being like, oof, that sucks. <laughs> and like, yeah. And it's one thing to be channeling the tough part about being CEO at work and, and being like, I'm not going to be liked right. by everybody. It's another when you go to your right. private personal space with your family right. and having that energy right outside your front door and window. Oh, it was horrible. What, like, what, is, what does that do to you? How do you maintain composure? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's horrible. And fortunately, I had a gate around my house, so they couldn't get too close. But I remember I would go play tennis and they would come from one to three on Saturday. And sometimes I'd come back from tennis and say, oh, my God, those people are at my house. And it really I don't want to use the word destroys you, but it deflates you. And here I am, the way I think of myself, someone who's trying to do the right thing. I took this job because I wanted to give back to my community. And people are now challenging my decisions in public. You know, the Washington Post was out there and we couldn't get the D.C. government to implement any noise control. D.C. has the most liberal protest laws in the world. But anyway, I couldn't believe it for a long time. First of all, I couldn't figure out why they didn't come when Bob was running the company. Why all of a sudden now come to my house? Also, it really scared me to death because one of the things about security is you have some sort of anonymity. And once these people came to my house, 250 to 300 people every Saturday, I'm like, well, what if one of them wants to come back at 2 a.m. in the morning and do harm to me or my children? And I was divorced by then. And then I worried about my kids. You know, what do they think? And so I used to talk to them about it all the time. But my neighbors 
who were mostly white, <laughs> really didn't know. They're like, what is she doing over there at BET? And so I also felt that it was very unfair that they didn't go to, to outside the homes of the artists. I wasn't making the music. I was just trying to make the best decisions. And another thing that kind of hurt my feelings is the music industry never came to my defense. I was going to ask you actually that, which is you broke through so many barriers to have one of the most important roles in in music and entertainment for the, uh, the Black community, especially. And how did that make you feel that you didn't have that sort of allyship from the music industry when you might have needed like a friend? It made me feel bad. And I remember we put on a town hall about the issue because we said, let's put this on TV. Let's hear from both sides. Let's have Al Sharpton come in and the people, video producers and artists. And the only artist I could get to come was Nelly. Now, his video was one of the ones they hated the most. <laughs> and I had to, you know, a little threaten him and say, Nelly, if you don't show up, I'm not going to show your videos. And again, that's mm-hmm. counter to my character. But I had to learn to do that, to say, look, I have the power here. Not be so nice. <laughs> yeah, not be so nice. Yeah. So final question, who's someone else we should have on the show? Hmm. That's a great question. In the business world or any kind of people? Any world. Like if you wanted to say Beyonce and facilitate an intro, we would be thrilled. (laughs) I know. I'm not sure I can do the (laughs) intro, but Beyonce would be great. I don't know if you know, I'm sure you do, of Rosalind Brewer, who's now the CEO of Walgreens. Uh, MC Light, who's now the voice of everywhere. When I heard her voice as an announcer at the Super Bowl, she started with us and and did the BET Awards. Now she does (laughs) Emmys, Oscars. And when I heard her at the Super Bowl the other day, I was like, so so happy for her. You know, she's she's the voice of everywhere right now. (laughs) So there are a lot of people. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for everything you've done, for taking some time with us and congratulations on the book. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise. <laughs>